Let's return our attention to Hebrews chapter number 2. And let's remember that the points that uh, the writer are making are to show that you can't abandon Jesus and go back into Judaism because the whole point of Judaism is Jesus. Uh, That Jesus is the only mechanism of salvation that God ever intended to use. Everything else in history past and in history future are tied into him. And so he's been, um, first of all, hammering at this idea that Jesus is no angel. He never was an angel. He is God himself. Uh, God the Son, um, God the Creator, made flesh. And uh, that Jesus, uh, because of this, has great glory given to him. Um, And the most recent thing uh, that we were emphasizing is that Jesus never came to save angels. Angels are servant class. They were always designed to do operations behind the scene in support of humanity. Humanity was made in the image and likeness of God. And so when humanity went off the rails because of sin, Jesus came to save them, humanity, offer them the chance to be redeemed. And so in order to accomplish that, he divested himself of his divine prerogatives and took on the form of a human being from conception onward. And so that's where we pick it up again in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, the children of God uh, because of creation, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That is, he became a human being. That through death, that is, his death on the cross, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Now, the power of death here is not talking about the ability to take physical life. This is all about the uh, the situation where Satan makes the accusations that any human being that sins must bear the penalty of second death, separation of God, or separation from God for eternity. And so Satan has wielded that as a great big club against all of us. I mean, that's his whole name in Hebrew. Satan means adversary, and diabolos, or devil, means accuser or slanderer. And so that's what he's been up to all of these millennia. Uh, And Jesus, when he died and rose again, took away that tool in Satan's arsenal to keep accusing those who were redeemed of needing to have the penalty of second death assessed against them because we're no longer um, we're no longer under uh, that condemnation. Now, 
verse 15, and to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So Satan was able to manipulate a lot of humans because those humans figured they were already toast anyway. Verse number 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. So angels will not be redeemed. Satan and his approximately one-third of the original uh, number of created angels, they're all done. I mean, hell itself was created by God, according to Matthew 25, uh, as an eternal place of confinement for Satan and his angels. There is no redemption for them. Um, so Jesus did not come to redeem anyone other than humans. And uh, this guy writing this letter is particularly focused on Jewish people, ethnicity of Israel. And so he zeroes in on that, that Jesus came to help the offspring of Abraham. Verse 17, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So this is the reason for the incarnation. If you're going to help out human beings, you have to understand what it's like to be a human being so that he might become a merciful. What's that about? You care. It, it touches you when things happen to those that you're like, those, those that you have a relationship with. So Jesus, by becoming flesh and blood, becomes merciful, and he also becomes a faithful high priest. Faithful meaning trustworthy. Um, we have a tendency to trust people that understand what we're doing or what we're going through. Uh, so this is going to be th the next theme, uh, the big theme that he will develop over time. So that he, Jesus, might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation. Now, propitiation is a big, gigantic, fancy word that just simply means the place where sin is removed. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant, the very top of it, uh, shares this Greek word, uh, the mercy seat idea, because that's where the blood was placed every year on the Day of Atonement to represent the taking away of the sins. So, Jesus makes propitiation through his own flesh, through his own death and resurrection, for the sins of the people. He takes it away. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So Jesus understands, and we will emphasize this repeatedly through this letter. Chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers, uh, and it's not a gender brothers here, it's, it's the idea of all of you that are related into the believing family, male and female. Therefore, holy siblings, if you will, you who share in a heavenly calling. Uh, what's the heavenly calling? 
That is, God is calling from his heaven, be holy as I am holy. And when we've sinned, he says, repent and come back to me. That's, that's the calling from heaven uh, toward us. You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Yehoshua, Jesus. The apostle, now apostle in its most literal form, means someone who is packed up and sent out. The word actually appears in some um, non-biblical literature as a barge. And what what happens with a barge? Uh, You pack it full of goods and material that you want to go to another place where it will then be unloaded. So that's an apostle. Uh, Jesus is God's apostle. God the Father packed him up with all sorts of things that all of us down here on planet Earth needed, and then he sent him down here with that to unpack it for us. So consider Jesus, the apostle, and the high priest of our confession. So he is the top religious leader in the church. He is the head that provides intercession. He provides the religious actions needed to save us. So he is the apostle, he is the priest, high priest of our confession. Confession literally means to say the same thing as. Uh, It is typically uh, in our Christian circles intended for two purposes. Uh, The one that may come to mind first is the confession of our sins where we acknowledge, I did the crime. I deserve the time in hell. Um, And so that is important. We have to confess uh, that we were the ones that screwed up. But the other confession is the one that we usually relate, I think, to to Peter himself, uh, and that's the great confession, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and he is my Savior, he is my Lord. Uh, That is the confession of Christians, that we acknowledge that what has been said and written about Jesus is all true. So, back to the first part of the verse. Let's put it all together now. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him. So think about Jesus, who has been faithful to God the Father, carrying out his mission. Just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. So the Jewish people hold angels in high esteem, but they also hold the prophet and legislator Moses in very high esteem. So it's not surprising that uh, we're going to go down that path briefly to help Jewish people, because that's who the target audience of this book originally was, to understand Jesus is not just simply more significant than angels, he is more significant than Moses. So don't you dare throw him off to the side in the hopes of escaping persecution in his name. Verse 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory 
than Moses. Now, you might remember, Moses asked God, please show me your glory. And God's response was, no one can see my glory and live. But I will let you get a little taste of it. I'm going to put you in a cleft of the rock, put my hand over you. I'll pass by describing myself, and then I'll take my hand away, and you can see my afterglow is, I think, probably the best way to understand the passage uh, there in the book of Exodus. And what happens? Moses soaks up all of that afterglow, and when he comes down from Mount Sinai, he is literally glowing with the glory of God, just like angels do. And it scared people. And so he ends up putting a veil over his face. And Paul wrote about all that, remember? So Jesus has been counted worthy of even more glory than Moses. You know, the Jewish people thought of Moses as being a glorious person. Jesus is more glorious than that. Because, let's be honest about it, even though it's not here in the text, Jesus' glory is his. It's not soaked up and reflected like Moses. Uh, Jesus is the origin of the glory. Uh, So Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more glory than the house itself. So you see a grand building and you're like, wow, that building is so cool. It's so amazing. And then somebody introduces you to the guy that built it, that designed it. You are going to be even more in awe of that person uh, because he produced the other thing, right? So that's the point. Uh, Verse 4, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Uh, So houses are pretty cool. But the builder is even more cool. The world is pretty cool, but the one who built the world is even cooler. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they deserve all this glory, all these accolades. But back to Moses, verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. So Moses was a very good servant of God. And that is why he has such honor within the the Jewish face, within the Jewish family, uh, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. So that was part of his job. He took from God all this information, and he passed it on. So he was a faithful servant of God, very important in the process. But, verse 6, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Now there's a difference. A servant is not a son. A servant works for the householder. The son is the heir of the householder. So Moses was an employee, while Jesus is actually the son of the company, uh, or excuse me, the son of the company owner and the heir of everything. 
And so Moses, as big a deal as he is, and he most certainly is, he doesn't hold a candle to Jesus because Jesus is the Son of God. Moses is just the servant of God. Verse 6 continues, And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Uh, Now, the word house here, um, and I think they do this on purpose, uh, can be thought of both as a a physical thing, a material place, but also as in the household, uh, the people that make up the family unit uh, that lives inside that house. Um, So, we, we have to hold on to our confidence and our boasting in the hope that we are part of the household of faith that will eventually be ushered into uh, the presence of the one who designed and built that household. And that'd be God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Uh, This prompts the writer of Hebrews to get back to quoting some big sections of Scripture from the Old Testament. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and this time he goes to Psalm 95, today, and underline that word today in your head because it'll come back, today, if you hear his voice, and, and here for the Jewish people had a lot of, of thinking packed into it as a word. Shema is the imperative form of the word for hear. Uh, and it is the way that you would say, listen up. And it wasn't just simply let these things bounce on your eardrums. It was do something with it, right? So Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, right? Meaning, do it. Um, Paul writes, don't be just simply hearers of the word, but doers of it. Uh, and uh, that's, that's what we're getting at here in this text from not Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and they saw my work for 40 years. So this is a historical um, lesson for Jewish people that you know what it was like in the wilderness experience. The the Jewish people who came out of Exodus, uh, the Exodus out of Egypt, they put God to the test. They pushed his buttons, as we would say, repeatedly over the 40 years. And so the psalmist is saying, don't you go down that same path. If you're listening to God, don't do like the ancestors did. Verse number 10. Again, this is still inside the quote in Psalm 95. Therefore, I, meaning God, was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. Remember, the Jewish heart is the place where you make your choices. They have not known my ways, 
as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, there's a little bit of an idiom uh, in the Hebrew here, uh, where God says, uh, I swore in my wrath as if they would enter into my rest, uh, meaning it ain't going to happen. Uh, they may think they'll get there, but they ain't because of their, well, going astray in their heart and not knowing my ways. All right, so that's the quote from Psalm 95, which he is now going to use to teach a lesson. Verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be any of you, or in any of you, so in your number, an evil, unbelieving heart. There's the quote from 95, Psalm 95, uh, the place where choices are made, leading you to fall away or to walk away from the living God. So in the time of the Exodus, uh, many of these Israelis that came out of Egypt saw the miracles because of the hardness of their heart, walked away from God, walked away from the living God. And so the psalmist was saying to later Jews, I'm telling you, don't do the same thing. Listen and obey. Because those that didn't obey, they didn't get to enter into the rest. Verse 13 of our text. But exhort one another each day or every day, as long as it is called today. So uh, the advice here is that all of us who are Christians talk to others who are Christians day by day saying, hang in there. Don't give up. Don't abandon Jesus. Don't walk away. Don't throw him under the bus because he's the one that saves us. So, Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Uh, so this world is full of deceit, and uh, that deceit often leads us into thinking we can do whatever we want. It's all about us. And so the Hebrew writer is saying, don't get sucked into that. Verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So we only get to have an eternal relationship with God if we stick with the relationship we already have with Jesus Christ. We can't throw him under the bus. We can't, as some of these people were doing. I'm going to just go back to uh, being related to God through my Jewishness. That is not going to cut it because the whole idea of being Jewish was to prepare for the coming of the Messiah, Jesus. Verse 15. And it is said, quote, this is again from above, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion, end quote. And by the way, um, the rebellion here is a very specific rebellion uh, in mind, in, in Meribah, 
uh, go back and you can check some of these places and see what that was all about. But verse 16, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? See, Moses is the big name, right? And yet Jesus is a bigger name than Moses, more important personage than Moses. And so here, this writer of Hebrews is saying, who exactly was it that rebelled? Wasn't it a whole bunch of those people that followed Moses out of Egypt and then they turned around and rebelled? Verse 17, with whom was he, God, provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? So again, the emphasis on this idea, wasn't it a whole bunch of Jewish people who saw a lot of miracles by God himself, heard his voice, was given his word, had his great prophet Moses, had his tabernacle, had his glory cloud. Wasn't it all these guys that ended up pushing God's buttons and getting on his last nerve and losing relationship? Verse 18, to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? Yes, of course, it was that bunch. Uh, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. They did not get to go into the promised land because they did not trust God to get them there on his terms. And so that is the emphasis of the writer here is that we have to remain in God's way of doing things if we expect to be ushered into his eternal kingdom. Uh, chapter 4 begins, and this is where we'll have to kind of wrap up today and come back tomorrow. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, lest you fear... Uh, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So as long as the opportunity still presents itself to enter into God's eternal presence, which happens either at your death as a faithful believer or at the second coming of Jesus Christ. So as long as that's still future, let us fear, respect God lest we come under his judgment. Mark your place. We'll come right back here next time we're in the Word.